One second here. Okay, let's hear God's word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, again, we thank you for this day. Um, We thank you for a time to come together and to look into your word. Um, God, we particularly thank you for, um, God, this passage where you, you again, um, give us an insight into the way we should be praying, um, the way you have uh, called your people to pray and the the great... um, God, the weightiness of the things that we should be praying for. Um, God, help us to understand these things rightly and apply them to our lives. Uh, We pray that you would do that through the working of the Holy Spirit, um, that you would shine light on this text, um, that we would see it rightly, that we would apply it rightly, um, that we would understand it truly, um, God, and that um, you would give us not only the knowledge, but the strength um, to live these things out uh, each and every day. God bless us uh, through your word this evening. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, we're continuing on in Ephesians. And something I talked about earlier on in, as we've been talking about the, the, the book of Ephesians is, so every once in a while Paul will give these prayers, right? And he'll talk about how he is praying for the church. And those are unique situations because when we see Paul praying for the church, then that's like a doubly um, special moment for us because it teaches us how to pray the way God would intend for us to pray because those prayers are part of God's canon and God's word, right? And so, so obviously we can pray to God for uh, all the time and for any number of things that we can, we can call out to him about anything that we've got going on in our lives, and yet there is a special significance when the Bible says, I am praying this way for the churches, there's a special significance there, right? We should pray in the same way for the churches because um, we see that in the scriptures, okay? And so, interestingly, Ephesians is the only one of Paul's letters that has two of these places in it, all right? So there's lots of different letters where he will give us a place where he says, uh, I'm praying for the church in this way or whatever. Ephesians is the only of his letters where he does that twice. Okay, and in some sense, you might even see this whole thing as as one big prayer, right? So he started that prayer in chapter one, the second half of chapter one, and then he has digressed a couple of times. Remember how we talked about the little dashes? We're going to see another one of those in this text where he sort of interrupts his thought for a minute and, and goes on a rabbit trail and then comes back. Well, well, some commentators will say he's actually doing that with most of the book of Ephesians, right? He starts telling them about what he's praying for at the end of 
of chapter 1, and here we are at the end of chapter 3, and he's finally sort of going and closing in and saying, and this is the content of what I've been praying for you, even though I've gone down a couple of these rabbit trails along the way, okay? And so it's a neat place. It's a neat text for us to look into. And, and I want to uh, look at it kind of in, in a couple of different ways tonight. And maybe some, some comments at the beginning. We have to acknowledge that the Christian faith requires strength. Okay? It requires strength to live it out rightly. Um, it's hard, right? That's why we need strength, because it's hard. Sadly, we often give the impression that Jesus works in our lives in an instantaneous kind of way, in a way that is so um, complete and ties up all the loose ends that like, we don't even have to do anything. We just come in. Uh, I was talking with a young man last Sunday, and, and he was saying some of those things. He was saying, you know, um, some people will talk to me about Jesus sometimes, and they'll say, you know, oh, well, when I received Christ, he just solved all my problems and, and fixed all my problems. Um, and I'm not saying that can't happen. Certainly Jesus does that sometimes, but, but he doesn't always do that, right? Sometimes there's a lot of difficulty and a lot of perseverance. In fact, usually there's a lot of perseverance that takes place and has to go um, on as we progress through our faith. Years and years ago, I remember talking to a lady who had come for counseling at church, and she dealt with a whole lot of mental illness issues, right? So bipolar and, and depression and schizophrenia and all these different things uh, and a lot of stuff that she didn't like, right? I mean, she, she knew that these things were hurting her, and she didn't want to feel these ways. And she said, if I become a Christian, will Jesus take all these things away? And I said, man, I would love to be able to tell you for sure that he will. And I'm not telling you that he can't, but I'm not saying that that's necessarily going to happen, right? These may be things that you have to trust Christ for daily and struggle with on a daily basis for a long, long time, possibly for the rest of your life. Um, she didn't like that answer, right? That was not what she wanted to hear. Faith is difficult, right? Our faith is not a Popeye faith, right? It's not a Superman faith. We don't just take one can of Jesus and open it up and eat it, and then all of a sudden we're good to go for the rest of our lives, right? It doesn't seem to work like that, or at least certainly that's not our experience of it, right? Um, and so starting with that point is important, I think, because it helps us immediately get a little bit of context for this verse as we go into it. All right. So starting there with what Paul says in verse 14, he says, for this reason, right? Um, remember, he said that at the beginning of chapter three, two, before he got off on that tangent for this reason. So what reason, what are we talking about? What reason is he giving? He's saying, well, for the, because of everything that I've already said, in the book of Ephesians, right? Everything that's already been stated. So we can go back and think about all the things we've discussed. Because of the blessing that we have in God of family, forgiveness, future, of faith, all those things that have been given. As a result of those things, right? Because we talked about those things. Or the glories that are revealed in, in the gospel through our lives, right? The hope of your calling, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us to, who believe. Um, for those reasons, for all, in, in light of all those things that I've talked about, right? Or the unity and the beauty of the fact that the gospel destroys the dividing wall between the nations, right? For this reason, because of these things that I've already talked about, right? He says, for this reason, I bow the knee before the Father. This is why I'm praying, he's saying. In light of all these things, this is why I'm praying. But he's praying for one particular thing in this passage. And you'll notice that about Paul's prayers if you go through the different books and look at them. Usually there's one 
thing that he says, I'm asking God for this. And then he elaborates on that and gives all kinds of different kind of aspects of it. But there's one thing that he's asking for, okay? Lots of additional clauses, but typically one thing. And we see that one thing in verse 16. Paul is praying, he's bowing the knee to the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Right? That's what Paul's asking for the church, churches around Ephesus. That they would be strengthened with power. Okay? So everything else he says is going to be a function of that in some way, of being strengthened. All right? And so, again, the previous prayer that we saw in chapter 1 was a prayer for wisdom. So it said, um, he asked that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of him. Right? And so, again, everything that was talked about after that was a function of that wisdom and knowledge. Here, it's for strength. And yet, those two things are actually connected. The strength and the wisdom are connected, too, and we're going to see that in just a second. So... Um, we don't just need knowledge of God and the gospel, right? But notice this. We need strength to apply that knowledge to our lives and, and our daily living, okay? It's one thing to know God loves you. But it's another to believe that in a, in a deep-down kind of way, all right? And what appears to be the case from this passage is the thing that keeps you from believing it in that deep down kind of way, the thing that you are lacking is to be strengthened, right? The strength to believe these things, the strengthened with power to believe these things, to understand them right. Again, why? Because faith is hard, right? Living the Christian life out is difficult. Faith takes strength. We need that strength. And that's definitely what he's talking about in this passage. But he's not just talking about any kind of strength, right? We're not talking about worldly power. Paul is not asking for the church to have worldly power. He's not saying, hey, you need to be more politically involved or politically motivated or have people in high positions of authority. He's not talking about political power. He's also not talking about the normal kind of things that we probably associate with power, wealth and affluence and influence and physical health and things like that. That's not the kind of uh, power that Paul is praying for. We know what kind of power he's praying for because it tells us right there. Strengthened with power what? Through his spirit in your inner being. All right? So what does that mean? Through the spirit, that means it's a spiritual kind of power we're talking about. Not an earthly, not a fleshly. We're not talking about force. We're not talking about violence or coercion. We're talking about spiritual power. Okay? But we're also saying... The, the, the aim of that is the inner man, okay? We're not even talking about power out in the world, you could say. Paul is asking for us to be strengthened in our inner man, okay? So that's kind of a weird phrase, right? What is your inner man? We see that mentioned in a couple of places, especially in Paul's letters throughout the Bible. So in 2 Corinthians 4, he says this. He says, therefore, we do not give up, again, a situation where, um, it's difficult. You want to give up? He says, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but we focus on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
or so again in Romans chapter 8. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So what is that saying? It's saying Paul's asking for power, but he's not asking for power for this outer body. Okay, He's asking for power in the inner man. And what we see in the scriptures is this. Even though right now your outer body, your outer man is dying... Like even now it is dying, right? You are getting older, you are getting weaker, disease and decay um, and dysfunction are setting in little by little. The second you're born, you start dying, right? Except what's interesting is this. The Bible says that is not true of your inner man. Your inner man as a believer is actually being renewed every single day, right? And you can't see that, but it is being made alive. It is being, you could even say, resurrected every single day, day by day. And so then Paul says, we don't focus on this, right? We focus on what God is doing in our hearts, in our inner man. And so Paul is specifically saying, he's saying we need power, but not external power. We need power in the inner man for these things to come to fruition. And if it wasn't something that we were lacking, Paul wouldn't be asking for it, okay? And this is kind of an uh, important little thing. It's just kind of a little side thing, okay? Um, how often do you ask when you study the Scriptures, right? You're studying the Scriptures and you say, man, how should I be thinking about an issue um, in, as a whole, right? How should I be feeling about these kind of things? What is normal for the Christian life? All right. Well, a great way for us to get clues on that is to look to what the scriptures are asking of God on our behalf. Right. So, for example, if if you're sort of wondering, is being tempted, is temptation a normal part of the Christian life? Is that something that I should be dealing with? And then you go to the scriptures and you find all these verses that say, God, please help me in times of temptation, right? Help me to stay out of temptation. Help me to um, uh, maintain my, my character in temptation, all these things. Well, when you see those places, you go, oh, yep, temptation is a normal part of the Christian life, right? Something we have to deal with, okay? So, by that token, if Paul is asking for inner strength, in the inner man, then what is the reason for that? Well, what he's saying is that we've got a power problem in our inner man, right? We are weak oftentimes in our inner man. There's something, the reason why we can't accomplish the things we want to do and the reason why God isn't working oftentimes as much as we would like him to is because there is weakness in our inner man. And so Paul's saying, God, please give us strength, strengthen us in the inner man, right? Weakness shouldn't surprise us. It's a normal part of the Christian life, okay? And we've talked about it, that weakness is not a function of a shortage of power, okay? We got all the power we need, okay? We have, in fact, even in this passage, what does it say? It says, bless them according to the riches of your glory, right? We've already talked about in Ephesians how there is unlimited power at our disposal, the problem is, is that we not only have a knowledge problem, which we saw in chapter 1, but it's obvious that we have a strength problem, and we see it in, in verse chapter 3. So Paul's asking for this strength, right? But not just strength for the sake of strength, right? Not just as, as something that um, is, is just for its own ends, right? The purpose, the goal of that power is, is for something specific, and we see that. Later on in the verse, look down there in verse 17. So you might say that why we need that power 
is, is so that, so that Christ might renovate your life, right? Or that at least you could say Christ might set up residence in your life. What does it say in verse 17? It says, starting in 16, strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay? So, we need power so that Christ can dwell in our hearts by faith. Now, probably what you're thinking immediately is, Ash, hasn't that already happened? Isn't that what happens when you become a believer? Doesn't Christ come in and dwell in your hearts? Um, Isn't the Spirit already dwelling inside of us? Like, why do we need power to have this accomplished, okay? So I think what what it's getting at is an idea that we find in other places, especially in John's Gospel, called abiding, right? So we have this idea where um, we see in John chapter 15 where Jesus says this. He says, abide in me and I in you, okay? You abide in me. Abide means to set up residence, right? It means to rest in. It means to make your home there, okay? Jesus says, you abide in me, I'll abide in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. All right? And so to, to dwell, right, and abide, they're not identical words, right, even in, 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 the, in the original languages, right? But they have the same kind of ideas, to take up residence, to be at home with, to stay somewhere and make that your home, okay? And so to have Christ dwell in your heart is to be filled by him and shaped by him and have him be the one who characterizes your inner life. And Paul is saying... We don't do that. We have a hard time doing that because we are lacking chapter 1, knowledge, and chapter 2, the strength to bring that knowledge to fruition. Okay? Because here's the reality. There is an incredible danger and a gravity to having a Jesus that just comes to visit in your life. Okay? Instead of having a Jesus who has set up residence in your life, who is abiding and dwelling in your heart, you have a Jesus who comes for extended stays, maybe, right? Or who comes to visit on the weekends. There is a, there's an extreme danger in that because it can make us feel like we are connected to Christ when in fact, Jesus is not Lord of our lives. He is not dwelling in our hearts. And Paul is saying it takes strength to do that. It doesn't come naturally, right? You don't walk out and say, oh, I trust in Jesus, and now he has indwelt me to the extent that I don't have any of those problems anymore. No, this is something that Paul is having to pray for his church on a regular basis for. Christ is indwelling in us automatically as a believer, and yet to live in that reality requires something more. A strength that is outside of us, that must be given to us by God to accomplish. So, um, we have an old house that we want to remodel, right? It's my grandparents' house, and it's been gutted, and it's a shell, and Kevin's seen it. It's a mess, okay? Um, it is, it's going to be a big job. And here's the truth. I keep on looking at it more and more, and I go, 
I don't have the strength to do it, right? I don't have the endurance to put in to that house, right? Jesus comes into your life and he says, I'm going to renovate. I'm going to dwell here. I'm going to set up in this new place, right? And it's at least as difficult a job as me renovating my grandparents' old house, okay? Um, it requires all that same strength and all that strength, same endurance. It's not a bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, we're finished, right? It doesn't happen instantaneously. And so that's the kind of picture that we're getting. Why do we need power? For Christ to dwell in our hearts, in the inner man, Notice some of the, some, in some of your translations, there's another dash there, right? Does anybody have that? In some of the translations, all of a sudden there's another dash. And we talked about last week. When there's a dash there, typically what that means is that the translators think Paul is, is sort of doing a hard stop and then going on a tangent, right? He breaks in the middle of a sentence and goes, wait, 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 I want to explain this and go off on this, this thing or whatever. And he's doing that again in this passage, right? So he says, I want Christ, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then now it's, I think he pauses and he says, well, let me explain what that means a little bit. Let me give you a little fuller picture of what it would look like for Christ to dwell in your heart by faith. And so he says, first off, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So he says, you are that, right? It's not something he's asking God for. He says, you are rooted and grounded in love if you're in Jesus Christ. Um, the gospel begins with that, right? It begins in love. You enter into that as someone who has believed in the gospel, Think about the language there, rooted and grounded, right? You have an agricultural term and a construction term, right? Um, you have roots that have been put down. You have a foundation that has been laid. Plants grow in keeping with their roots. Buildings go up in keeping with their foundations, right? This is the beginning stage. And he says, you've already been had that. You have been rooted and grounded in love if you have trusted in Christ through the gospel, right? Christ dwelling in us, therefore, is about us growing from that foundation, Growing into those things, you could say. So you've been begun in the love of Christ. Now grow in the grace and knowledge of that. And so that he explains it more. He says, what would that look like? Like, what would it look like for us to be able to grow in that way? And then verse 18, and this is a, it's a great passage. All of this is great, obviously. But, but 18, I was talking about it at Christie today. Like, I would just kind of go, it says this. It's kind of nuts that it says this, right? Verse 18, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So again, you could ask the question, don't they already know the love of Christ, right? Isn't that what being a believer means? Isn't that what the gospel is all about, to know the love of Christ? And the answer is, certainly it is at the beginning, but, but don't we also know this? Don't we also know that we all waffle in that all the time, right? We know the love of Christ in our life, and yet when a little bit of adversity comes our way or a lot of adversity comes our way, right, we start asking these questions, right? Is God really with me? I mean, do you really love me, God? I, don't, I just don't see what you're doing right now. I don't know why we're going through this. I don't know why I have to struggle with these same things over and over again. Do you really love me? And so when Paul says he wants you to know these things, it's, it's obvious that we already do know them to an extent, but he wants you to know them more. We lack that because we lack strength. 
strength to acknowledge the infinite love of God in our lives, right? And notice, notice the paradox that I love that's, it's one of the neat things about the text, right? The incredible reality of the gospel. So Paul says, I wish that you would know the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of this thing. But he's basically saying, but it is unmeasurable. But I wish that you could measure it. I wish that you could see the extent the volume, the size, the measurements of God's love for you, even though they are beyond measuring. And then he says the same thing in verse 19, and he even explicitly says it. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What does that even mean, right? To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. I want you to know the thing that cannot be known. You never could know it. It's so big, it's so grand, you could never know it, but I want you to know it, right? I want you to be able to measure something that is immeasurable, to know the unknowable. And you might say again, well, I know God loves me, right? No, you don't. You don't know like he actually does, right? The picture that you have of God's love for you is tiny compared to the actual reality of the size and breadth and height and immensity of God's love for you. But Paul, nevertheless, says, man, but I wish you did. I ask God that you would. I ask God in chapter 1 that you would know it, and then I ask in chapter 3 that you would have the strength to bring these things to fruition in your life. That the root of your life would draw its energy to the solid ground from which everything you do, the stability that you have, that the sanctification that comes from those things, that the holiness in our lives, that all of those things would be from this knowledge of the great love of Christ. In fact, what does he explicitly say in verse 19, the second half? He says, why, what is the end of all these things? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Right? That's holiness. Okay? We've already talked about this before. We talked about how, what are, what are we here for? What's our, what's our purpose in the universe, right? We talked about its mission and its holiness, right? It is to be like God, and it is to do what God has called us to do. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying two interesting things, right? He's saying, man, if you could know God better, if you could see him more clearly, you would be more like him. But then at the same time, you had there, there would be something a strength that would have to be worked in for you, uh, in you to be a, to accomplish these things, right? And haven't we talked about that already as we've gone? We talked about making every effort, right, in our in our Lenten series, making every effort to um, pursue the life of Christ. It's both of those things. We lack knowledge and sight, and we lack strength to see it through. And so, what is Paul crying out to God for for the church? He's saying, God. Give them knowledge of these things, and God, give them the strength to have these things become a reality in their life. And he closes on this, and then I'll be done. What can we expect God to do? Right? Can we just sort of say, well, those are really nice prayers, but I, you know, we'll see. I don't know what God could do. He tells us in verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Okay, so again, think about the fact that he just asked to know the unknowable and measure the immeasurable. And then he says, the God who we are praying to can do more than you can even ask or even think, even imagine, 
right? I don't even know what that means, right? You've already told us that this is immeasurable, but then you've said that he'll do more than what we even ask him to. If we ask him to help us measure the immeasurable and know the unknowable, but he's going to do more than that, I don't know what more there is to know than the unknowable. I don't know. But, But again, that's the vastness of it, right? This huge, epic, we haven't used that word in a couple weeks, epic, Stakes involved here, right? And then he says, verse 21, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Again, we see that this is the the purpose of our lives, right? That all of human history and all of, of, of spiritual history is working towards this thing where we are people who are made holy in his sight, we're Christ is given glory. The church is is glorified as well. But God is glorified through the church and through his son. And we are all a part of that. And so I like, again, maybe the way that Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians. He says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen? And so this is what I think we should pray the same things for our church because there's, there's these two cool ideas that come together. On one side, beholding God is becoming like God, right? As we gaze upon Christ and, and gaze upon what he has done in the gospel for us, um, it will draw us up to him, okay? But there is a reverse side of that coin also that says... But, but you are not passive in this, right? You are an active participant. There is effort exerted on your part. Not that you win it, not that you deserve it, none of those, none of that kind of effort, right? But it is not just that you behold and become, but also you make every effort, okay? Those two things are, are two sides of the same coin. Don't ever separate them. Don't say, I need to do nothing because God will do it for me. Right, But at the same time, never say, I just need to work harder and everything will come out okay. That's not the case either, right? God works both of these realities in our lives at the same time. And what he has in store for us is something that we could never even imagine. So let's pray that way, okay? Would you pray those two things on a regular basis, a daily basis, a multi-daily basis for our church, right? Go back and look at chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, and say, I'm going to pray for our church to know, to be given a spirit of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. I'm going to pray for that. And then two, uh, you're going to come to this passage, and you're going to say, I'm going to pray that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And to what end? So that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now I'll tell you what, if we were filled with the fullness of God, if we knew Christ the way it's talking about and had the strength to pursue him the way um, it's talking about, Who knows what would happen with our church, right? Who knows what God would do with those things? Um, Instead, we tend to live in ignorance. We tend to live in apathy and a lack of power, right? Um, We just sort of say, man, poor old me. I, I couldn't do any of these things. And Jesus says, all these things are available for you. Ask. Ask these things of me, and I will give them to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, I won't kind of keep on hammering the point home because you get it.
Um, let's pray these things right now. But again, I ask that you would pray these things in forever, honestly. Um, not for weeks, not for months, but these would be the heart cry um, of your prayer life for our church, for the church of God in the world um, until you die. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I pray for Pleasant Grove at College Street. Um, I pray for each man and woman and boy and girl and family represented here. God, I ask of, of each of us, God, that you would work in incredible ways, God, to bless us with knowledge, to bless us with wisdom, um, to make us see what you have for us in a way that we have not seen it before, God, that we would, um, God, recognize the amazing hope to which we have been called, God, that we would recognize um, the incredible inheritance that you have in the saints. That is to say that you love us so much that we are your prize, God, and that you would give us strength to make these things real in our lives, that you would give us the strength to not just have these as concepts that sit out there, um, but, God, that, that Christ would dwell in us, that these would be truths that come into our hearts and change us and renovate us and make us into different people. God, that you would be leading us to live lives um, that are characterized by the fullness of God. God, that is epic. That is something that almost sounds strange to say because it sounds so big that it almost seems irreverent, blasphemous to ask for something that good, that grand, that incredible in our lives. And yet again, Paul reminds us that you are ready to do even more than we could ask for in prayer. God, even more that we could imagine in our hearts and minds. God, give us the courage to ask for that kind of knowledge, that kind of power, and that kind of change in our lives, to be people who are um, transformed by those truths. God, I pray that for this church. I pray that for myself. God, and I pray that for every single person um, who stands under the banner of Christ. We ask these things in his holy and precious name. Amen.